it's a fine line you're walking, a very delicate balance, beating people over the head with the message and, and holding out your hand and letting them see it in the palm of that hand. You know, you have to ask yourself how much of this needs to be shoved down people's throats and how much of this needs to be laid out for people to really examine and, and, and digest for themselves. And I think that's going to be the same delicate balance that has to be walked from now until this restarted in experience in the bubble is over and beyond. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we are talking to Seku Smith from the NBA.com trying to unravel and think about what we think of all the activism coming out of the NBA's bubble right now. The taking a knee before the anthem, the names on the back of the uniforms. Is this progressive? Is this radical? Or is this just woke marketing? Uh, I want to talk to Seku about that. I'm wrestling with this myself. Um, Also, I've got some choice words about what's happening in the world of college sports. Just stand up and just sit your ass down and more. But first, let's go to Seku. I guess I I wanted to ask your thoughts. I mean, first and foremost, um, when everybody takes a knee, in your mind, does the gesture lose its punch? No, it, I mean, it doesn't. Um, and I think everybody has their own individual ideas about how you express yourself at a time like this. But the gesture itself, no, it doesn't. It doesn't diminish it, the impact of it or the optics um, for me. What what I worry about, Dave, is do you does the message get diminished to the to the folks who aren't as sensitive to this topic as, as I am, or maybe you are. Um, and I wonder if continued gestures like that, you know, ends up kind of blunting the message. And, mm-hmm. and I know I'm like anybody else. If, if you tell me something once and it resonates, well, you don't have to tell me over and over again, but if, if I'm immune to something, if I'm, if I've been systematically immune to certain things, Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how many times you have to tell me for it to sink in. And and that's what I wrestle with is mm. how much is too much and how much is, is hitting the spot. And, and I think that's something that is really difficult to gauge for everybody because you just don't know how receptive certain people are to this message that I think overdue to be talked about um, and needs to be a part of our, our national normal discourse. That's an interesting point. I mean, you're saying that um, by now, if it hasn't hit you, it's not going to hit you. So what does it do to keep doing the gesture again and again at this point? Yeah, because I've had some conversations with friends of mine of all creeds and colors, and some were blown away. They were flabbergasted to see the George Floyd video and and a lot of this stuff is just now coming home to roost in their minds that, hey, this is serious. Like, this is a real issue. As opposed to other people I know, we've talked about this stuff nonstop, really since Rodney King. Yeah. Some, you know, some people I know, really since Trey Martin and Tamir Rice and some other high-profile incidents, 
where this became a, a regular topic of discussion for myself, some good friends of mine. And, and like I said, I'm, I got a rainbow coalition of friends and associates who have all striped creeds and colors. And, and some of us, we talk about certain things. Others, we talk about different things, you know. So you, you're not having these same conversations with everybody. But now, you know, I, I, the focus for a lot of people has turned to, you know, some of these social justice matters that we've never discussed before. Now we're doing it on a regular basis. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you saw or read Bill Roden's piece in The Undefeated, but he wrote about it from the perspective of uh, the NBA and marketing and if everybody does it, uh, what does it do um, to the message? And I want to read this quote from him. He said, from the league's perspective, allowing players to kneel during the national anthem was a gesture that symbolized unity and reinforced the idea that we're all in this together, except we're not all in this together. Does he have a point there that by having everybody do it, it reflect, it changes them. It actually changes the message on a molecular level to we're all in this together instead of like we are dissenting against the way the system operates. Yes. And, and I understand what he's saying is it's kind of like the movement's been co-opted now, you know, mm -hmm. because um, institutionally, you, when you bring this stuff up, you're fighting against the system. You're fighting against the status quo. And for any sports league or any large corporate or government entity to adopt this, you know, to adopt that side of it, yes, it feels you, you're being compromised. And I, and I get that. But I would, I would push back on that only to say if, if the league is standing with you and I know that's a kind of a, a weird thing to say about uh, a, something where everybody's taking a knee. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But if they're symbolically, if, if, if the league is standing with you, to me, that means you've won part of the battle already. Mm. Because, because somebody in a position of power has, has, has digested the message the way it was intended. And, and that's a good thing. And I, and I applaud Adam Silver, Michelle Roberts, the leadership of the MVPA, um, the most high-profile and not-so-high-profile players who have all stepped up and and made this something that they want to be vocal about. You know, Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr, two coaches who certainly had no reason to speak up and speak out about this stuff. They had, they, there would be nothing that compelled them to do this other than being good human beings and, and good citizens. Um so I, you know, as as much as you worry about it being co-opted, Dave, um, I think there's strength in numbers, so to speak, and, and that having allies is never a bad thing if their intention are genuine. And I and I think there's quite a few of those in the NBA. No, no, I I feel you on that definitely. Um, but uh, re real talk here. I mean, we know. And certainly the marketing folks at the NBA know that if you're young in this country, you are more diverse than other generations and you are far less tolerant of intolerance. You know, that, that's just a fact. If, you, if you're under 30 or if you're under 25, that's probably going to be your mindset going forward. Yeah. And the league wants to reach those folks. 
So is there a line and how do you draw the line between kind of woke marketing, if you will, and resistance politics? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, if the league, if, if you're smart, what you have to do is is not don't throw this stuff in, in people's faces to that you're coming at them strictly from a marketing standpoint. Because let's be honest, if, if we really want to get down to the bottom line, players, teams, and the league itself have been change agents in, in certain communities for years. NBA Cares has done a ton of stuff that's never gotten it, that the movement, the you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has gotten in the last few months. They've years, you know, in terms of every All-Star weekend, you know, there's a huge, you know, outpouring of energy and support for whatever local community, um, you know, players have foundations that operate in their, the markets they play in and home 365 days a year. And it, it, it just doesn't get the attention that the movement is getting now. So I, I don't want to suggest that this is some, you know, marketing ploy or some grand design to look like a woke league or to look like you really care. Um, the, the league has made a point of that. They've, they've made, made it a point to give back, you know, in ways that average citizens are not capable of financially, certainly. Um, but with the and energy of these great players, I mean, listen, let's keep it real now. They, they've done, They've gone above and beyond in a lot of instances without getting the attention that it probably should. Mm. So, I mean, you know this better than I do because you know the players, and I, I'm, by players I mean capital P players, like the people in the league, executives, mm -hmm. things of that nature. Mm -hmm. um, when, when they do things that um, are forward-thinking and smart, like, for example, providing testing for um, impoverished people in Orlando, uh, so it's not just like players who are getting this kind of rapid testing or saying they're going to donate $300 million to causes that promote racial equity. I mean, is that them being proactive and smart or is that them insulating themselves from criticism that they're just doing this uh, as a way to look uh, woke? No, I think it's them being proactive and smart. Did you did you hear about the NFL's program that's doing the same thing? Uh, no. Or or Major League Baseballs or the NHLs? No. Me either. You know, and that's not a knock on them, but let's, I mean, what the power that you have with these conglomerates of players and owners, I'd be, you'd be hard-pressed to find another group of, you know, 400 to 600 people on this planet that could move the financial, social, and, you know, needle the way that the NBA can. And I mean, think about that for a second. Find me 600 people with the financial power, the social impact and, you know, social media reach, the headlines they draw. I mean, there, there's a power in, in just being proactive in the space that I think we can't lose sight of. Um, you know, the, I think about the WNBA and, and their players and how vigilant they've been from day one, you know, before anybody, they were, 
speaking out about injustices and advocating, you know, on marginalized communities. When when very few other athletes, professional athletes, were willing to stand up and step into that. Um, so no, I, I don't think, and that's what I'm saying. I, I worry. That's why I worry initially about how much of this is seen as a guilty, you know, batch of millionaires trying to make themselves feel better, you know, by a lot of people, and how much of this is is resonating in a very genuine place for people that hey, you know, these guys care. You know, they, they're sons and daughters of the very people who have been marginalized, and that's why they're standing up and out on some of these issues and, and being vocal about it. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the big debate going into all this was, uh, you could call it the Kyrie versus LeBron, although that's way too simplistic. But the two sides were, if we go forward with this bubble league, if we go forward uh, with playing into August, we run the risk of distracting from what the streets are trying to say about systemic racism. And then the other side saying, no, if we go ahead with it, it'll actually give us a platform to further amplify those ideas. Did you have a position at the time on who was right about that? And what do you think now? Um, I I didn't have necessarily a right or wrong position on it. I could could obviously see the merits in, in, in both arguments. But I'm a believer that, you know, a light on, you know, highlights what's going on way better than a light off. And if the league wasn't lit up, if, if the, there weren't games, there weren't broadcasts of these games, and there wasn't an opportunity for these players to be in front of a bank of microphones or in front of a Zoom, you know, um, call full of people in the media, would we really pay as much attention? If it wasn't on your televisions or, or blaring out of your whatever you listen to, would you care? Like, would you really dig in and, and digest that message? And think about all the stuff you could be paying attention to right now with, with COVID-19, mm-hmm. the economy in shambles. You know, there are a lot of different things to snatch your attention away from this movement. But if if the players and the people who are most visible you know, and you start counting up Instagram followers and all that stuff that people use as a metric, you know, for, for what kind of reach you have. You start counting that up. Would you rather have that to serve up your message or would you have rather not? And think about it. Kyrie made a huge gesture donating a, an, an enormous amount of money to WNBA players. And it for the most part, it was a momentary headline that kind of vanished. Mm-hmm. And is that because Kyrie's not in the bubble? He's not down there with the Brooklyn Nets, not able to amplify that on a daily basis with his team and all the attention they're getting, or not? And I would I would argue that it loses some of that impact because he's not there. Not not that he's wrong for not being, but that is a prime example what folks that were talking about playing and, and using that platform to amplify the message we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, as you said, like the message is something that uh, runs the risk of becoming redundant to the people who already get it and the people who are closed off from it um, aren't going to hear it in the first place. Yes. And there are people who, like I said, there are people who made their minds up already. They don't want to hear it. They don't think it's legitimate. They don't, you know, 
they certainly don't want to hear from these athletes that you know these guys who they just want to go out there and shoot dribble and and be quiet about anything other than basketball that you're not winning that crowd over that's that's not the crowd you're you're trying to reach to me if you're the NBA players. The the people you're trying to reach are the compassionate, you know, empathetic, right thinking folks in society who maybe have not jumped fully on the social justice bandwagon and and need a little bit of a push. And mm. and I think there's nothing wrong with that. I know that some people get they feel like they're being preached to in ways that maybe they don't like. But sometimes you need you need to hear that sermon. Yeah, well, well, well said on that. Um, what do you think of the names on the uniforms, like the slogans on the back of the uniforms? Like when, when you're, I mean, not in theory. I mean, like when you're actually watching the games and you see, you know, uh, you know, I am a man go up for a shot against uh, say her name and things like that. Is that something that does that put a does that put a smile on your face? Does it make you roll your eyes a little bit? Do you think it helps? What do you think of that? Um, I think it helps for people who have who aren't avid diehard watchers of of this game. Of this game. So for me, it's kind of hard because I watch it all the time anyway. Um, when the restart happened, I shocked myself recognizing players. You know, the fifteenth dude on some team that they you know camera flashes past his face, and I know who it is. And I thought to myself, man, how in the world did I remember this dude's name? You know. Um, so for me, it's different. I, I, but I know for somebody who's a casual viewer normally of the NBA, who's now tuned in maybe for the first time in a really diehard way, it, it maybe starts a conversation in that person's household or, or amongst that person's group of friends. Um, and again, you, to me, it's a, it's, it's a fine line you're walking, a very delicate balance, beating people over the head with the message. And, and holding out your hand and letting them see it in the palm of that hand. You know, you have to ask yourself how much of this needs to be shoved down people's throats and how much of this needs to be laid out for people to really examine and, and, and digest for themselves. And I think that's going to be the same delicate balance that has to be walked from now until this restart in, experience in the bubble is over and beyond. Because like the players have said, and a lot of people said, they don't want the movement to lose steam. Well, that doesn't just mean now for the restart. That means if you're going, if you're going to stand here in this space and really be about it, it has to be something you do for a duration. It can't be a temporary thing. And that's, that's what was interesting to me about LeBron James saying that he didn't think putting something on his jersey indicated what he was about. And I, and I thought to myself, if anybody can say that, it's him. Here's a guy who started a school in his home community in Akron to aid the lives of marginalized people. I mean, if any if anybody could could take take a step out of the Jersey situation and say I don't want to I don't want to do that one way or the other, it's him. Um, mm -hmm. But a lot of these guys, Dave, we're hearing from for the very first time. We're hearing them talk about these very important things for the very first time, and and maybe having Black Lives Matter on the back of your jersey resonates with people. Did the league make a mistake, you think, when they wouldn't let Jimmy Butler do the no-name jersey, at, which was his own political statement about I'm no different from anybody else? Yeah, I mean, I would have liked to see the, see him let 
let guys put whatever they wanted on there, but I could understand where you'd run the risk of there being a little too much. And that, that's been my biggest concern with this from the start is, would the message be focused and direct enough from this large group of people who all come to it with their own unique perspectives? You know, would you be able to boil this message down? Would it be succinct enough to have the impact you need if everybody was trying to do their own version of it? And, mm -hmm. and that's, would it make more sense to just have certain people be the spokes, spokesmen or spokeswomen for the entire group? You know what I mean? I Because I don't know if I feel comfortable with everybody trying to tell me, you know, and that's what they're essentially doing when they look into these cameras or they or they make these gestures or... They're, they're they're speaking directly to the general public and saying, this is how I feel about this, or this is what I think about this. And, and you've seen we've had some instances where certain players, you know, actions or inactions, you know, decisions about how they want to handle it have been met with, you know, a lot of backlash on social media. I know Jonathan Isaac took a lot of guff mm -hmm. for saying that he didn't want to take a knee and, and having a different approach about it, which I think is, that's the whole point of these guys kneeling, is that nobody should have to conform to to somebody else's, you know, view and understanding. But what you do is you allow everybody the freedom to speak to whatever their truth is and however they want to do it. And that, in turn, promotes the message you're trying to get across. Yeah, that's real talk. Um, and last question, you've been great and generous with your time, but I'd be totally remiss if I didn't ask you what, what's your take on, on the quality of the ball and the rhythm of the season and the fact that we've got these games all day back to back and, uh, and the rest of it, like what's your take on what the NBA is actually putting forward as product? Um, I'm sure there are defensive coaches around the league who are mortified at the scores. <laughs> um, you know, I look up and at the end of the first quarter, somebody's got 49 points, you know, and I'm going, or you look up at halftime and, you know, it's 77 to 81. Or, you know, and I'm like, what? But the the quality of play has been better than I expected it to be through these first days um, of the restart. I think we'll see probably by the second round of the playoffs, things will kind of settle back into what we're used to for an NBA postseason in terms of the attention to detail on defense, the energy that you have to play with on defense to survive a playoffs. Um, but kudos, listen, kudos to the players for, for showing up and, and competing. Like mm -hmm. I, I was laughing at people just assuming that a lot of these teams would mail it in or like that, that, that the Phoenix Suns would be happy to be there and just show up and take, take some beatings and get out of there. I mean, like, how about, how about Phoenix and Indiana and some of these other teams that people didn't expect a whole lot of Oklahoma city showing up and balling, you know, like. That that speaks to the professionalism and, you know, the love of the game that these guys have, that they would show up and perform the way they have early on. And then hopefully it gets better, um, like I expect it to, you know, as we get deeper and deeper into this and the best teams, you know, show themselves. We're going to see an even higher level uh, of NBA basketball like we're used to. But it's been – it's far exceeded my expectations so far i did i did not expect to see this quality of play this early i thought it would be much choppier just given the four plus month layoff and how long it takes guys to find a real rhythm 
um, when you're playing at this level. TJ Warren, surprised? He, yes, balling. You know, balling. I, and I love it. I love to see it. Gary Trent Jr., balling. Um, I love to see these young guys. Michael Porter Jr. Michael Porter Jr., destroying it. I mean, I love seeing young players. I, I was laughing with somebody last night. I told him, I said, this is like gone wild with the with the veterans as opposed to just rookies and just, you know, the scores, the the buzz in the gym every day, you know, the way it, it looks on TV. I'm going down. I'm checking into the bubble August 31st until the finals are over. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I was torn initially thinking about it. Like, you know, man, it's just a tough time to have to leave your family and go down there. And, but now after seeing the way the, the games have gone and, and noticing how, comfortable the players are in this very strange atmosphere no fans you know playing in these foreign buildings i'm i'm juiced about it now i'm I'm fired up to get down there and see is is it the same in person as it looks on tv which is like really high quality basketball just playing in a very different environment than we're all used to no that's real talk right there um and last thing carmelo What's your take on Carmelo Anthony right now? And what should we be taking? What, what does this say about Carmelo Anthony as a professional? Uh, well, it says what I was saying two years ago, which is every people were beating Carmelo up for not being successful in, you know, when he goes to when he goes to Houston. Um, you try telling somebody who's been at the top of their game and been a, on that superstar pedestal that you have to take a backseat when in his mind – in, in his skill set, he doesn't see where he's been diminished the way the outside world does. And and ask yourself, how tough would that be? I give him a ton of credit for humbling himself the last year and realizing that he had to find a situation that worked for him. And I'm going to tell you the truth. You can go back and find it where I, where I talked about it or where I may have written it. I've been saying for a long time that he would be an ideal fit in a place like Portland. The way they love the guys on that team and affiliated with that franchise up there, the way you get a very specific kind of love from that basketball crazy community up in Portland, having teammates like Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. Um, and then Carmelo's fabric as a human being, just as a guy who's been through it. Now you think about the beating he took in New York and, and that he's taken throughout his career from a lot of critics who don't want to recognize him as one of the greatest players of his generation for whatever reasons, I give it up to Carmelo for showing up and showing out the way he has for Portland. And I think he's going to be a huge factor for them if they get in the playoffs and he gets an opportunity to perform again on that stage. Mm, Stay cool, Smith. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Always, Dave. Always good to talk to you, bro. Great to talk to you. Be well. Yes, sir. That was Stay cool, Smith, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. 
And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about what's happening in college sports. Okay, look, the top college athletes in the revenue-producing sports knew which way the wind was blowing as soon as word of a deadly pandemic hit the airwaves. They knew that even if there was no vaccine, even if the rest of the campus were shut down, and even if they had to be sent to a hermetically sealed bubble, they'd have to play. If they were to catch the virus, then next man up and the train would keep on rolling. That's the reality of the modern neoliberal campus. That's the reality of the NCAA. And no one knows that better than the college athletes themselves. But these are not ordinary times. Discussions about the sundry injustices that college athletes face have been on the fringes for decades. And now they're entering the mainstream. Work stoppages, economic rights, and racial justice are now topics up for consideration. It's a startling reflection of our political moment, which has the potential to harpoon the NCAA. In the Pac-12 conference, which includes teams like UCLA and USC, players have put forward a series of demands challenging the status quo of their assumedly powerless reality. The debates and discussions about what to push for began with concerns about reopening amid COVID-19. But after the police murder of George Floyd, they also became about racial and economic justice. Speaking to ESPN's Bomani Jones, Jake Curhan, a redshirt senior football player at Cal said, when we first got started, our only thought was coronavirus. We started talking to some of our teammates and they said, what about the Black Lives Matter issue? We don't want to detract from their issue. The more we started talking with them, it became clear that the two were the same issues. Valentino Daltoso, Curhan's teammate, put it this way to Jones. Coronavirus is the most pressing issue of the moment, but it's just put a spotlight on how college athletics works. They rely so heavily on us to bring this money in and we don't see a penny of it. They are talking the S word that strike if demands are not met. Now the Big Ten, the power conference of iconic programs like those at Ohio State and Michigan is organizing as well. In an open letter called Big Ten United, authored by Players of the Big Ten on the Players' Tribune website, a thousand athletes signed on to demand input in the opening of any kind of a season. They wrote, We are deeply disappointed with the lack of leadership demonstrated by the NCAA with respect to player safety during the COVID-19 pandemic. We believe that the NCAA must, on its own and through collaboration with the conference, devise a comprehensive plan to ensure the safety and well-being of players leading up to and during the upcoming fall season. They also called for more economic support, including coverage for all out-of-pocket medical expenses related to COVID-19, scholarship protections in the event the season is canceled due to COVID-19, an adjustment to the cost of living stipend to account for the increase in personal expenses related to limited access that players have to facilities, and reimbursement for stipends that were reduced during the summer. All this comes after a summer when high-profile coaches like Mike Gundy of Oklahoma State and Clemson's Dabo Swinney found themselves in hot water with their players and programs for being at best tenured about the demands and aspirations of the Black Lives Matter movement, and at worst preening from the wrong side of the police line. All of a sudden they were on the hot seat, the power dynamics dramatically altered at long last. 
This comes at a time when sports on college campuses could not look more imperiled. Earlier this summer, the Ivy Leagues and many historically black colleges and universities canceled fall sports. This week, the NCAA's Division II and Division III have canceled championships. The University of Connecticut has announced that football will be canceled. Louisville has announced that it will be suspending all activities for four athletic teams after 29 players tested positive for COVID, all linked to one off-campus party. UCLA just announced that 10 football players have tested positive. There are similar stories peppered across the landscape. This is creating a reckoning for the plantation system of college football like we have never seen before. It's the pandemic, it's the racism, it's the absence of economic justice, and it's a volatile combination that could change the system forever. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now's the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to Jalen Brown of the Boston Celtics. You know, one of the things we just talked about with Sekou is how are players actually using this social justice spotlight? And uh, Jalen took his post-game press conference to talk about the anthem, but he did it in a way that was really deep and I think is the sort of thing that even if you're already, you know, like we talked about with Sekou, even if you're already clued in, even if you're already a supporter of the agenda of anti-racism and dismantling oppression, uh, what's what Jalen Brown said I think is going to get people to read and get people to think. Let me read this. This is the words of Jalen Brown. Angela Davis once said that racism is so dangerous not because of individual actors, but because it is deeply embedded in the apparatus. I think about that quote a lot when I think about the National Anthem, which was written by Francis Scott Key, who was a slave owner. When we talk about the National Anthem, we don't talk a lot about the third verse that was written, which addressed slavery and mentions that there's no hope for a hireling enslaved but the gloom of the grave. So racism is so deeply embedded in our country that people don't even flinch at the idea. It kind of is what it is. It's not the protests, it's not the police officers, police brutality. It is all of that is important. But it's also the framework of systemic oppression. And that starts with the national anthem. I think being able to take a knee is appropriate and it may not really even be enough. But I'm proud of the NBA being a part of the right side of how people feel. All right, that's Jalen Brown. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award Ass we might as well call it the Senator Kelly Loeffler Award because I think she's about to set a record for how many times she's getting it. Uh, Kelly Loeffler, who's the senator from Georgia and a WNBA franchise owner, she talked to not one but two white supremacist reporters in the last week 
One is this guy, uh, Jack Pasabiek. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, don't really care. On the OWN network, who he openly cavorts with Nazis. There are pictures of him online uh, having Nazi fun at bars. <laughs> and the other person she talked to was Laura Ingram on Fox, who's a straight-up racist. That sucker is simple and plain. And this is where Kelly Loeffler has gone to trash the Black Lives Matter movement and rail against her players and rail against what she calls cancel culture. Forget for a moment that she's doing this while like 160,000 people are dead from COVID. Forget for a moment that she's doing this at a time where we're in an economic collapse and she's a U.S. senator and that this is what she's spending time on, quote unquote, cancel culture. Kelly Loeffler, you're straight up canceling yourself and you need to sit your ass down. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you to everybody for listening. Thank you to David Tigabu, the producer of this. Thank you, Sekou Smith. For everybody out there, if you want to listen to past episodes of the show, you should do so. Go to SoundCloud. Go to uh, iTunes. Check out our interview we did last week with Ice Cube. Uh, Please, please, please wear a mask. Please be safe and please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Peace.